Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. This is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Every week I have a different guest who are living out the Catholic faith in their own life through their vocation, their calling, their profession. Today my special guest is Elizabeth Scalia, otherwise known as the Anchoress. She's one of America's foremost Catholic bloggers and journalists. Her book, Strange Gods, has been doing wonderful things and with lots of readers. Welcome to More Christianity, Elizabeth. Very nice to talk to you, Father. Elizabeth, you're one of the well-known bloggers who's out there stirring up the Internet with the Catholic faith and all sorts of links and interesting ideas. How did you get started with the blogging? Oh, I was wasting a lot of time on the Internet hanging out in religious and political forums. The religious forums were great. It's where I discovered how much I loved the Church, and it encouraged me to read documents and, and really explore the faith in ways I hadn't. I'm maybe one of the first success stories of the Internet as a tool for the new evangelization. And I was also hanging around in political forums, and I kind of developed sort of a following in the political forum to the point where the person who hosted it said, you really need to leave because it's becoming like your little place. <laughs> and, and I understood that. I, don't want, I wouldn't want anyone to take over my, uh, my blog either. I had discovered I have an opinion on everything, and I must share everything. I may as well start a blog, and so that's what I did, and being kind of a shy person and and really wanting to maintain my anonymity because a person with strong feelings elicits strong reactions from other people, and I kind of wanted to protect my family and my kids to an extent, I did it anonymously and chose the persona of an anchoress because I am a shy person. I kind of like to hang in the background. That I know that goes against everything I just said about me, but it's the truth. And, you know, I thought in terms of a window, the screen is like a window, and, and this is going to be my little place. Some people um, may not be familiar with exactly what an anchoress is. Is an anchoress a woman who um, pulls up anchors on boats? I mean, tell us what an anchoress <laughs> is. Well, an anchoress or a, a fellow, a guy, would be called an anchor or a right, or sometimes just an anchor. In the Middle Ages and medieval times, you would have a man or a woman who literally would be sort of built into the church. They would create an area off the side of the church or off the side of the sanctuary, and they would brick up the, the anchorite so that that person lived right there forever. Never There would be a window where they would talk to people and also, of course, pass out waste, get in food and all of that. And there would be another window facing the sanctuary where they would be able to receive communion. And they essentially stayed in that little cell for all of their lives. It's not so different from, say, a cloistered monastery where, for example, the Dominican nuns in New Jersey, who I'm very close to, you know, their they're sanctuary, they share it with the public, they're behind the grill, and then they live their entire lives behind the church. It's, it's the same sort of thing, only an anchorist or anchorite would be just for one person. It sort of combines being a hermit with being a contemplative. My favorite anchorist, of course, is uh, Julian of Norwich. When I lived in England, it was great to go to the city of Norwich. Now, you can actually go to the church. It was rebuilt after the war when it was bombed, and they, at that point, discovered the foundations of Julian's cell. So you can go there. It's a place of prayer and pilgrimage to read her writings and, and be in touch with that great tradition. I don't know whether Julian of Norwich would have had a laptop. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> Honestly, I think if it were available to her, I bet she would, because she was a writer. She expressed herself in, in what she called her showings, and in fact... 
the great quote from Julian is very reassuring. What she saw in her contemplative conversations with Christ was all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. I think Julian would have been a knockout on the Internet. I also think Hildegard of Bingen would have been, at, and obviously St. Paul, too. Can you imagine G.K. Chesterton on the Internet? Yeah, well, I asked Dale Alquist, who's the president of the American Chesterton Society, I said, do you think Chesterton would have had a blog? He said he did have a blog. I said, what do you mean? He said his wife, Frances, was named Frances Bloggs. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, I honestly think that if Chesterton had a blog and access to social media, he would probably work himself to death. He would just never sleep. He would just be on constantly, you know, debating with people in social media, writing something else and, and getting into it. And I think that he probably would have shortened his life substantially if he was on social media. Listen, he, he would not have had enough windows to open up to do all that he was doing. You probably know that even with the technology that he did have, he used to write two or three articles at the same time. He had a secretary to whom he would be dictating one article while he was handwriting another article, and he was researching a third one. I mean, he was phenomenal, the, the, the industry of the man. I reckon sometimes Chesterton was as corpulent as he was because he just didn't take any exercise because he was so busy writing all the time. Honestly, that's, that's sort of I identify with that completely. It's, blogging has gained a lot of weight since I started blogging because I guess in a way I am the same sort of compulsive personality, obviously not as brilliant as Chesterton, but compelled to constantly write and, and engage and, and do battle or, or cheerfully do battle, I will say. And I spend far too much time either writing or engaging in that way also. And, and I've recently had to bring exercise into my life because I figured I don't want to die at this desk. And it's yes. going to kill me if I don't start moving around a little bit. I can see the obituary now. You know, Elizabeth Scalia, rest in peace, she died from blogging. <laughs> yes, yes, someone's going to die from blogging. I don't want it to be me. Okay. But, I mean, I, I happen to suffer from insomnia from time to time, and I'll go on, say, Twitter at 3 in the morning. And there are people there at 3 in the morning who are also there at 10 in the morning who are also there at 5 in the afternoon. I don't think they sleep. They're just on Twitter all the time. It's very strange. This is one of the exciting things about the new media is that there are so many outlets, so many places to communicate, so many places to get ideas and words out there. As a fellow writer, Elizabeth, I write fairly quickly and I, I, I get stuff and pump it out there like you do. And there always seems to be another article to write, another another comment to make, another observation to, to throw out there on Facebook or Twitter or the blog or one of the, one of the websites I write for. Elizabeth, your book, Strange Gods, has had a good reception and you seem to be fairly surprised by it. Can you tell us about that? Oh, you've written books, so you know what it's like. You get all done with it, and you think, well, there's a good piece here. There's a little part there that I like, but basically I have no idea if this is garbage or not. And I had been thinking about the idea of idols for so long. In fact, I just happened to come across something I wrote in 2008 on my blog asking whether our ideologies were becoming our idols. So that's how long I'd been kind of thinking about this and, and mulling it over in my head. And so by the time you, you think about it and then you outline a book and you write a book and you get done with it, you just hate the topic so much. And you don't even know if you're making any sense with it anymore. It's like you're too close to it. You know, you write something and after a while you can't even see it anymore. When I submitted it, they were like, oh, yeah, we like this book. And I was like, well, that's good. And then it did very, very well. It's, uh, it's in its third printing now. And um, this particular printing is also including a study guide, because I had so many people writing from, um, like, Catholic prep schools, 
saying that they'd like to use this for like their senior class theology class or their ethics class or something, would I create a study guide to it? So I did. And actually, if you have the book, you can find the study guide for free online at the Ave Maria site. And then this third printing has included the study guide in it. So that's kind of nice. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. It was one of those books that when I read it, I thought, you know, I think I said this. I think I said this. I think I said this. Only that we're so much on the same page, Elizabeth, uh, in so many things. I think you and I are often on the same page because you write about sentimentality a lot or sentimentalism. And that's one of my recurring... Uh, in England, we would call it the bee in your bonnet. Yeah, yeah that's in other very words, good. This topic of sentimentalism is something I want to talk to you about. You wrote a chapter in a book recently, which is called Disorientation. I did the chapter on utilitarianism. You did sentimentalism. Can you give us a brief outline of your thoughts on that? My jumping off spot for sentimentalism is, is the same as Flannery O'Connor's. She wrote that in the absence of faith, we govern by tenderness and tenderness leads to the gas chamber. Mm-hmm. And she's absolutely right. You look at the people who think they're doing so much good, they're making the world a better place, and they're doing it by, well, for example, in Hitler's place, getting rid of the useless feeders, for example. So sentimentalism is kind of attached to utilitarianism. Utilitarianism it's soft, is... It's a soft tyranny. Yes. So utilitarianism is doing something because it's useful and insisting that this thing happen because it's, it's the most useful thing. Sentimentalism is doing something because it feels good or it seems sensible or, as you say, wanting to go and help someone out of the goodness of your heart. C.S. Lewis talked about the person who lives for others, and you can tell the others by their hunted look. Yes. <laughs> you know. Well, you know, it's really funny. Um, there was a, a situation that happened just recently. I don't know if you've seen it. A woman has breast cancer that's metastasized, and she's gone through a great deal. And she's in her 30s. She has children. And so she has been tweeting the process Mm -hmm. of being someone with cancer. And pretty recently, Bill Keller, who is the former editor of the New York Times, and his wife decided that they would shame her a little bit or, or chastise her a little bit because it seemed to them she was trying too hard to hang on to life. Mm-hmm. And an example was given that Keller's father-in-law did sort of a noble thing in, in not fighting so hard to live. You know, he, he kind of very nicely died and didn't waste the family fortune right. in, in medical expenses mm-hmm. and what have you. And that's sort of the crossroad between sentimentalism and utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like what one of my brothers died a couple of years ago. And when he was dying, there was, you reach this point where you're like, I feel so bad about this. I am so overwhelmed with feelings of compassion and love and pain that isn't there some way we can just give him a needle and end this process? And that's sentimentalism. Right. And the relationship between utilitarianism and sentimentalism, it kind of seems to me like they're very closely related, but sentimentalism kind of puts a candy coating over the hardness of utilitarianism. If you take just that same question, there's grandma lying in the nursing home bed and she's had dementia and she's really just drooling and, and she doesn't seem to have much quality of life. The utilitarian comes in and is, and is fairly hard and says, you know, this person's costing us a lot of money and there's somebody else who can use that bed and really wouldn't it make a lot more sense if we just pulled the plug and just gave her a little bit of a pill that's going to carry her off. And so the utilitarian is looking at it from a pretty hard-edged usefulness kind of point of view. But the sentimentalist comes in and, and says the same thing, but says, oh, you know, look at that poor soul suffering. We wouldn't even treat a dog that way. 
And wouldn't it be better and sweeter if she could just walk across the river and be with her loved ones at last and be at peace? And so they're saying the same thing, but one is candy-coated. Both of them, I think you'd agree, Elizabeth, both of them are rooted in the fact that there's no objective truth. Of course, everything is subjective. The sentimentalist is interested in, in making sure you don't think he or she is a monster. Right. The utilitarianist doesn't, ma- doesn't care if you think he's a monster because he's trying to show you how smart he is and how comprehensive his understanding is. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. My guest today is blogger and author Elizabeth Scalia, and I encourage you to go to her blog, The Anchorist, which is published on Patheos. Also, jump over to mine, which is Standing on My Head. I blog there regularly. You can also check out my website, DwightLongenecker.com, where you'll find news about my latest book, which is called The Romance of Religion. Elizabeth, you were talking about sentimentality and its relationship with utilitarianism. Utilitarianism being doing things just because they're useful. Sentimentality, a little bit more subtle, doing things just because they make us feel good about ourselves. Is that the point you were making? Sure, and the utilitarian is someone who wants you to understand how smart they are, how well they comprehend all things, and how uh, logical. They're almost like the Spocks of the world. They're Commander Spocks. The sentimentalists are the ones who want you to understand what good people they are because they feel everything so deeply, and because their feelings mean everything. Your rules and your thoughts are evil because they're not compassionate and not loving. We see this a lot in opposition to the church. Mm-hmm. You know, people who say, well, I know this woman, and she's a really great thinker, and she's got a theology degree, and she should be a priest. If she were a priest, I would certainly listen to her, and I have no uh, regard for a church or a god that doesn't think, as I do, that women should be priests. Right, and so you also find the, the sentimentalist, who's always trying to be nice about everything, the one person they cannot be very nice about is the dogmatist, someone who says, well, there is such a thing as truth, you know, and our emotions and our sentiments are subject to these truths and to these greater authorities. They don't like that much because they're going to come back and say things like, oh, how can you be so cruel? Take the issue of same-sex marriage. To deny Bobby and Jimmy a marriage, they're such great guys. If you say, well, I'm not really judging whether Bobby and Jimmy are nice guys. They probably are really nice guys, and I'm not even judging whether they love each other. Maybe they do, but we're talking about object, something objective here, which is called Christian marriage, and that's for a man and a woman. They don't like that kind of objectivity. Right, well, and also you'll see that with the argument about divorce within the church. Mm-hmm. They don't want to hear what Jesus had to say about marriage because they're really nice people, and I love them, and so they should have everything that makes them happy. This is our whole culture, and it's going to be the basis upon which a great deal of future anti-Catholic persecution arises in this country, too. So this brings me back to that intriguing comment that you made from Flannery O'Connor, that sentimentality leads to... We govern in the absence of faith, we govern by tenderness, and tenderness leads to the gas chamber. Expound on that a little bit more, because it's a pretty shocking quotation. Take abortion and Down syndrome. If someone has a test, a prenatal test, and discovers that their child has an extra chromosome and is Down syndrome, they're immediately advised to terminate the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And why are they being advised that? For the good of the child, because the quality of life, it'll be so hard for you, it will be so hard for your other children, you know, and they're never going to be normal and good like everybody else. They're always going to be a little behind. You should terminate that pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten to the point now that worked so well 
that 90% of all Down syndrome pregnancies are terminated. So we have a situation here where we have not that many people left who have Down syndrome, and what people are discovering is, wait, they're really great people. Those are people who don't judge anybody. They kind of love unconditionally. We have a lot to learn here. And look, they can actually have a really good quality of life. Some of them even get jobs and live in apartments. You know, what have we done? Right. And, and that was all rooted in this soft tyranny of sentimentalism saying, I only want what's best for you, and, and the quality of life would just not be there. I guess I'm very passionate about this because I had a brother, and when he was 20, he had a stroke. And it was such a severe stroke that he, it, he lost the use of an arm. He lost one leg completely because of gangrene. He was blind in one eye. He lost most of his power of speech, except he remembered a lot of curse words. And he could say those. But, I mean, he lived for another 35 years like that. And people were like, oh, that's such an awful way for him to live and such a burden on all of you. He should have just been allowed to die mercifully. And, and, you know, this has made me believe in mercy killing. Look at how deeply I feel on your behalf. and, And so I'm going to suggest that he shouldn't be alive. Isn't that awful? It's terrible. And I'll tell you one of the things which is especially chilling is when this kind of sentimentalism is actually linked up with a form of Christianity. I had an amazing experience when I lived in England hearing about a hospital chaplain who advised a family whose unborn child had been diagnosed with Down syndrome to have an abortion. And uh, the hospital chaplain actually was the one who was advising them to terminate the pregnancy. And he said, you know, Jesus himself says, let the little children come to me and forbid them not. (laughs) I mean, it's just... Shocking, isn't it? And he so he used mind boggling. Yeah, and he used scripture and he used this his Christian religion combined with this vapid sentimentalism to encourage the termination of a pregnancy. And you can if a persecution ever starts up, you can be sure that there are gonna be Christian clergy people who will be there with their sentimentalist arguments. Let's say someone like someone awful like the Westboro Baptist people who are pretty obnoxious. Nevertheless, they have a right to say what they want to say, and you can hear some sentimentalists saying, you know, those people, they're obviously not well in their mind, and, and they need to be taken away to be re-educated for their own welfare. Well, you know, this is the sort of thing which may crop up, and it'll be sentimentalism combined with religion, which will be a most fearsome persecutor. Oh, absolutely. And against the churches, it will be more sentimentalist because that's how you appeal to people who have faith. You go through the emotions. And so you'll see it within the faith, various faiths, as you said, that preacher in England. And you'll also see it outside of the faith from government entities or secular entities. They will appeal to emotion to go after the people of faith, because if they try to go after the churches from a purely utilitarian point of view, they will get some people behind them, but mostly not. I mean, the majority of the country is, is are faithful. So if you want to appeal to them on these churches don't contribute enough in taxes, so they should be taxed. These churches d- discriminate because they won't marry gays at their altar, so they should be fined out of existence. You will only get so far with that. But if you go after it with sentimentalism, with the whole idea of, you know, this is mean, this is unkind, this is cruel, you can win over a lot more people, which is why it's such a successful tactic in our politics. This brings me to the point also of the proper use of sentiment, the proper use of emotion, especially in our ordinary lives, but also in religion, because we don't want to go to the other extreme of being 
as you said, like Mr. Spock and being, you know, cold, hard-hearted and with no emotion at all. In fact, at the heart of all religion is emotion, is proper sentiment. I mean, look at the Catholic Church with the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary and so forth, the Divine Mercy. There's a wonderful emotion at the heart of the Catholic faith. But the Catholic Church always says that human sentimentality, human emotion, is something which needs to be educated and channeled by proper discipline, proper devotion, so that it has its proper focus and therefore is driven forward in a most positive and creative way. The great saints were all passionate people, but their basic emotions and their sentimentality was contained and and disciplined by their religious practice and by their beliefs and and by their theology. Elizabeth Scalia is my guest today. She's known as the anchoress on her blog at Pathios. She's also the author of Strange Gods. Elizabeth, you're also a Benedictine oblate. In what way does the practice of your Benedictine spirituality help to channel emotion, do you think? Well, actually, I think the daily practice of praying the divine office as much as possible for a Benedictine oblate, obviously, we're lay people. My, I'm a lay person, so within my station of life, I can't do all of the hours, but to try to pay at, at least one or two offices a day. And in doing so, we're exposed to the Psalms. And when we are reading the Psalms and praying the Psalms, we are exposed to the human condition in all of its fullness. And one of the things that helps us with is perspective. I will never forget, for example, the, the day of the Haitian earthquake in 2006, I think it was, and I happened to be reading that morning the, the morning prayer of the office, and it was all about things are being crushed, people are being crushed under weights, the world is trembling, and it, it, it so perfectly suited the emotions I was feeling about that earthquake. But what I discovered over the years is that everything that we feel, when we filter it through the Psalms, we begin to realize, A, there's nothing new under the sun, because 5,000 years ago these people were saying the same things we're saying and feeling the same things we're feeling. And then that puts your feelings into proper perspective. You begin to realize that, A, my feelings are not unique. B, I'm not unique either. C, all of this is out of my control and has to be kind of left to the purview of God. When we get to that point, it's much easier to still be passionate about things, but be able to become less enthralled by them. You know, I I am passionately interested in what's happening in the world. But I also have developed, and I really think it's thanks to the office, a sense of humor mm-hmm. about things. So I don't beat my head against the wall saying, oh, I don't like this and I don't like that. Even though I don't like these things, I kind of realize that a lot of what we think is so important is really passing. It's already passed in, in God's eternity. You know, and everything's kind of about nothing. Everything is kind of an illusion because everything ended with the sacrifice of the Lamb. All is consummated, and and we are forever and always at the Last Supper. We're at the crucifixion. We're at the resurrection. Time ended with that tearing of the veil and the rolling back of the stone, and the rest is, like I said, illusion and catching up. So there's nothing to be afraid of. If that's the case, there's nothing to be afraid of. And so these passing trends of the world, got to learn to take the long view with it. And this is one of the things that being a Benedictine oblate has taught me, and the Psalms have taught me that there's a long view out there that we need to clue into, and we clue into that when we clue into God. 
So your Catholic faith, especially focused in the way of St. Benedict, has helped to give you perspective and to be able to see things in, in the long view and therefore to contain and, and also channel your, your emotions and, and the strong feelings that you do have. I've sometimes used the analogy, uh, Elizabeth, of music and saying, you know, music is this great, vast uh, panoply of sound and emotion which is out there. But to be able to use it most effectively, you have to take piano lessons and you've got to learn to read music and you've got to, you know, practice and do your music theory and all the rest of it in order to really enjoy it to its fullest and, and let it have its, its full weight. And it's a bit like that with our emotions, our, our subjective feelings. It's our Catholic faith which gives us uh, dogma, gives us belief, gives us the truth. It's the discipline of prayer which helps to link our own emotions and our own experiences with this great tradition which, as you say, stretches back not only through our Catholic faith but right back through 5,000 years to the faith of, of the Jews and, and their heartfelt emotions poured out in the Psalms. My guest today is Elizabeth Scalia known as the Anchoress, and she blogs at Pathios. She's also the author of Strange Gods. Elizabeth, we've been talking about sentimentalism in our own lives and sentimentalism in our society. You mentioned this great quote from the writer Flannery O'Connor that it's tenderness that leads to the gas chambers. Without being too sort of alarmist about it, do you feel that these two evils of utilitarianism, going by that which is useful, and sentimentalism, going by subjective emotions, do you feel that it's so widespread in our society that we're headed for kind of totalitarianism or the tyranny of, of sentimentalism? Oh, I do. And I'm kind of expecting it with a happy warrior perspective, because I think we want everything to be nice and we want to be treated nice. And, and beyond a certain point, nice just isn't going to cut it. Jesus told us that, you know, you are going to be hated for my sake. We are meant to be a sign of contradiction in the world. And as the world becomes more worldly, as everybody's distracted with their iPads and distracted with their Twitter feed and, you know, really only paying half attention to what's going on anyway as our policies are being written to conform to sentimentalist ideas, to ideas that are bolstered by sentimentalism and will be enacted. You watch all of that happening, and yes, of course, I think that's where we're headed. And the question is going to be, are we going to be able to be constructive with all of that? And I think that's the great thing about Catholicism. When you talk about perspective and you talk about filtering everything through the disciplines of our Catholic faith, well, the great remedy to sentimentalism are these disciplines. For example, I have chronic pain because I have arthritis all through my body because of a, a long stint of Lyme disease. Often, I'm just in so much pain I don't know what to do with myself, and I have learned over the years to offer that up. Now, that's an old-fashioned idea. You don't hear it very much anymore. Offer it up. But what you do then is you make it constructive because you attach it to the pain that Christ felt, and you have a scriptural basis for it because Paul says, you know, I, I join my suffering to the suffering of Christ for the salvation of the world. And this now makes it not just suffering, but constructive suffering that has a purpose. And I can't tell you how many times I've had, like, really bad pain in my spine, and I've been like, Lord, you know, I offer this up for someone who right now is, is maybe dealing with a spinal injury or something. I don't even know this person, but please take this pain, use it. You know, I offer it up for this person's benefit. And the pain will lessen in my back. And it's not suggestion, possibly the fact that I've taken my attention off of it to pray, but I see a difference. And I also feel like the pain is worth it then. I don't mind suffering so much. The same is when we're crying, when we feel really sad about that. Well, we have the Sacred Heart. We know how to do a novena to the Sacred Heart. We have all of these avenues in which to channel our sentimental feelings so that they don't become overwhelming and own us to the degree that they're almost idols. 
Thank you very much for being with us today. It's been a wonderful opportunity to talk to you. Elizabeth Scalia, known as the Anchoress, you've been listening to More Christianity. More Christianity.